according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Luke 18. Brand new event for us today, episode 31 in the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus Christ. Episode 31. In Luke 18, we have uh, two parables that are given in verses 1 through 14. The first parable is, uh, deals with a persistent widow in verses 1 through 8 that has a primary application in terms of prayer. And then in uh, the second parable, uh, the tax collector the, and uh, the Pharisee in verses 9 through 14, although it, uh, it, the, it takes place during the context of prayer, uh, it has a bit of a different emphasis, and that's what we're going to study. So uh, the persistent widow with a prayer focus and the Pharisee and the tax collector with a humility focus, and uh, both of which are, of course, very important in the uh, outworking of our Christian walk. So we ought to find this to be quite the uh, practical episode here at this time. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that uh, we are suited up properly, dressed appropriately, cleansed, and uh, suited for spiritual worship, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity once again today. By Your grace, You have made available for us the freedom to assemble in this nation, as well as the uh, permission to assemble in this building. Father, we thank You for the grace of uh, Live Oak Bible Church that has allowed us to remain here during the uh, construction of our new facility. And as we're counting down the, uh, the final sessions here on this property, Father, we are continuing to look to You for Your grace provision, for Your faithfulness in uh, moving us at the proper time. So, Father, we uh, again just commit to You our time now, setting aside distractions, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. We thank You in His most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, parables of the persistent widow and the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's look through it. Let's read verses 1 through 8. We're going to handle just the first of the parables here today and reserve parable number 2 for next week. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection for my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right, and then that wraps up there, and then starting in verse 9, we move on to the second parable. I'm just going to take them one at a time, so we won't even read the next one uh, at this point. It's going to be a pretty simple outline, and in fact, it's a pretty simple message. I hope that uh, 
I mean, even now, uh, anyone here in this room can probably teach the concepts. But after we uh, go through the notes and the subpoints and the details and so forth, I'm hoping that uh, a chapter like this, uh, a paragraph like this, can become a, uh, a pocket sermon that any of us can deliver at the drop of a hat that any of us can can pull out of our pocket and, and offer as a Bible study, as a devotion, as a fellowship time to uh, fellow believers, to younger believers, to, um, I think, uh, take everything we're studying in 1 Corinthians related to not, or 2 Corinthians, related to not losing heart, and take it to a story like this that Jesus tells and be able to illustrate in a very practical way what it is that you and I can do to keep from losing heart. And uh, on a very basic level, on a very simple approach, it may be that um, you've got a younger brother in Christ or a younger sister in Christ or someone, and, and maybe they're not at a point in their Christian walk where they're ready for um, the, the, the hyperbolistic power of the Christian walk. Maybe they're not ready for an exegetical study out of Second Corinthians chapter 4. It may be that the simplicity of fervent effectual prayer and the pattern that's set up here in this with this widow and this unrighteous judge this can speak in ways that other studies cannot and so i'm hoping that we will be equipped and suited to uh to be able to share such things all right we're going to break it down really into two main points the parable of the persistent widow teaches continuous communication with heaven the parable of the persistent widow teaches continuous communication with heaven. We're going to develop this. We're going to see as a pattern for our own application the idea that God wants us to wear him out. God wants us to, um, to live. This is a positive example uh, for how he desires for us to approach him in the priestly function of prayer. And it might be a little bit awkward We may not um, embrace it immediately because to us, this unrighteous judge is a thug. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's not Christ like he's not God like he's not. And yet the teaching says that based upon his words, we have application to make. And we can understand how our God answers prayer based upon how this unrighteous judge answers this woman. Does that seem awkward? Does seem, uh, well, consider how the contrast is made in, in Hebrews, for example, when it says, you being evil, love to give good things to your son, how much more? Okay, and, and in contrasting something that's very ungodlike with God, the proportion then just gets magnified. And the differences we have, how much more should we expect uh, that our Father in heaven is going to provide for us when even this unrighteous judge illustrates the principle that persistence pays off, that nagging works. Okay? Is that a dangerous thing to say in a ladies' class? Did that come up over the retreat weekend? Was that a. Alright. Now, nagging works. But why does it work? And then what is the aftermath of having had had it work okay and that's where we got to be cautious nagging in the prayer mode where god commands us to be naggers is a beautiful thing and god doesn't resent being nagged because he commanded us to nag him and in fact it urges us to even greater nagging 
down the road. All right. Uh, in other venues where the nagging is not welcome or appreciated, then although it may work, there can be some aftermath. There can be some consequences. All right. In terms of husbands or parents or bosses or pastors or people who don't appreciate the nagging, who never invited the nagging, who didn't command you to nag, and where the nagging is, in fact, entirely inappropriate. Am I making sense? All right, because I don't want anyone walking out of here. I don't want to get a long list of phone calls from husbands this afternoon saying, Pastor, why did you tell my wife that nagging was good? Maybe one of the quickest ways any pastor in the history of church age ever got fired by <laughs> all right the, the blessing though by the way um we've taught similar concepts because in a previous episode there was a parable told again it was a parable of a neighbor that came knocking on a door at midnight trying to get a neighbor to get out of bed and, and loan him something to feed some uh, some guests that had dropped in all right and and there too we thought you know, the first glance, reading through that story, we said, this this just doesn't seem on target, you know? I mean, the guy's going to give him something, not because he's his friend, but because, or not because he's a neighbor, but because he's just nagging him and he wants to go back to bed? Is that really how prayer works? Well, now, twice, God has made this point. With the neighbor knocking and waking him up, get him out of bed to, to get you off his front porch. And now here. With a judge that's finally going to just give a judicial ruling anything to keep this lady from giving him a black eye. All right. To keep her from uh, assaulting him and wearing him out. And uh, both seem awkward and yet they're consistent with themselves. And they're also consistent with the uh, totality of what the Bible tells us about prayer. I'm probably going to give you more prayer verses this morning than you want. All right. And that's. Too bad, because you're going to get them, and we're going to go through them one by one, and we're going to read them, and we're going to digest them, and then we're going to stop and confess that we don't pray enough. We don't. All right, and so uh, you'll see what we're dealing with here. All right, first of all, he was telling them a parable to show, to show, to demonstrate, to exhibit, all right? And I think it's interesting how prayer, the Bible describes prayer in a couple of ways. Hold your finger there. Glance with me back to chapter 11. Let's look at this. Because in Luke 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And I find it interesting that he wasn't praying with them, but he was praying near them. And it came to this point here where they wanted teaching on that. Teach us how. And so the point, if you want to put it down here as subpoint A, I believe there's two sides to this coin. That prayer needs to be taught, but also prayer needs to be shown. Prayer needs to be shown. So prayer needs to be taught, Luke 11.1, and prayer needs to be shown in Luke 18.1. And I think we can, furthermore, I think we can divide the showing into a couple of different illustrations as well. But prayer needs to be taught and prayer needs to be shown. Doctrinal teaching is, uh, of course, critical because it's with accurate doctrinal teaching then that the 
uh, the understanding of prayer, why we do it, how we do it, uh, all of the functions of prayer can be understood. We don't want zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. The last thing we want to do is try to motivate a prayer activity and not have the biblical understanding of why we're praying, what we're doing, and how we're doing it. So prayer does need to be taught. Beyond that, though, it needs to be shown. I think it needs to be shown by example. That's what um, Jesus was doing in Luke 11. He was praying and they were standing there when he was finished. Then they said, can you teach us how to do that? All right. So it's shown by example. But in uh, Luke 18, it's not it's being shown. It's not being shown by example. It's being shown by the parable, by the story uh, telling. It's being shown by a testimony to how it works. A testimony to how it works. And one of the best things we can do is to understand how prayer can be shown. How we can show our children. How we can show other believers. We can show uh, brothers and sisters in Christ how prayer works. And this is uh, the whole point of this story here. This widow worked. The request she kept making worked. She got what she wanted. She got what she needed. And the showing of that is the illustration in parable, but the showing of that is the illustration that we need to show. We need to show how prayer works. The, uh, the idea that an answer to prayer is... Uh, and see, here's the thing. that There's a mindset out there, and I, I do everything I can to stomp it, how prayer is personal. Okay? And prayer can be personal. Prayer can be extremely personal. And in those personal prayers, uh, I understand that. And we, we teach that as part of the teaching on prayer. Yes, there are some very personal prayers that you don't share with everybody on earth. Okay, There are also some uh, uh, prayers within the aspect of marriage. See, And we teach that as well. The fact that uh, husbands grant your wives the honor as a weaker vessel, right? You understand in First Peter chapter three, and the whole function there that your prayers may not be hindered. Yes, there uh, there is a privacy in, involved in terms of the intimacy of the marital prayers between a man and a woman. Okay, and and that's a, a realm of doctrine as well. You want to understand in terms of in terms of uh, prayer and and the application there again not broadcasting those things okay and yet i can already tell you what those prayers are like because i have them myself (laughs) every husband does every wife does okay it's common to man uh don't think for a moment that there's a prayer you're praying uh, on behalf of your husband and there aren't 20 other women in the congregation that have had identical prayers or close enough to it. Okay. At what point, though, uh, do we recognize that, you know what? Not every prayer is personal. Not every prayer is private. Not every prayer is secret. Not every prayer is that a considerable realm of prayer is very much public. A considerable realm of prayer is very much corporate for the multiplication of the thanksgivings, that grace may abound. 
where we are welcoming one another to become partakers in the struggles, but also partakers in the celebrations. And I think this is the component where the local church comes alongside. And it might be the women that pray like on a Wednesday morning. It may be the congregation that prays like on a Wednesday night. And there's venues for all of that. It may be where the, the men pray. If we have a men's uh, devotion and, and uh, prayer breakfast that we've had in the past. And things of that nature. It may be where just simply the leadership prays. Where I sit down with my deacons and we, and we get busy with it. Okay. Or combinations and so forth. All right. Um, where prayer can be shown. And part of showing prayer is not just the, the how-to and the practical, the hands-on and say, okay, here's how you do it. You know, just close your eyes and bow your head and, and say these kind of words. All right. Beyond that, showing, demonstrating prayer in this illustration means illustrating how the results came about and what were the results and how did we acknowledge the results okay and uh what is it that uh becomes the uh the, the prayer focus at that point in time i'm reading i finished reading the uh a biography on a mission field in uh, uh the netherlands and it was about a, a, a missionary work of a guy named Cornelius van der Breggen. And he had a, uh, after World War II, he uh, had a ministry in Europe in terms of uh, a gospel ministry, an evangelism mission field there. And uh, the kind of the write-up written 40, 50 years later gave a summary of everything that they did in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And uh, it's it's powerful, and I and I'm very thankful. John Eichmann is the one that gave me this this resource, and um, it's it's wonderful to read through these things because at the moment, right now, what are we doing? We're doing a building project, and we're praying, and we're trusting in the Father's financial provision, and a lot of the things dealing with a hostile city government and, and different things, and everything that they went through relates to what we're going through. And it's, it's powerful because what am I being shown in reading this biography? I'm being shown prayer and how prayer works and what the results are and, and the priorities that a body of believers had to pray and pray and wrestle and wrestle and not let go. Not let go until the Father's answer was unanimously identified. So I think this is part of it as well. It needs to be taught and it needs to be shown. What the greatest favors we can do in raising our children is showing them how we look to the Father in prayer and how we identify those, those answers when they come. All right. So I believe prayer needs to be taught and prayer needs to be shown. And you can show it in terms of method, but you can also show it in terms of testifying to the results of prayer testifying to the results of prayer and that's obedience to the scripture too that says let him who boasts boast in the lord anytime you stand up and testify to the results of prayer what are you doing you're not claiming glory yourself are you no you're boasting in the lord let me testify to the results of prayer and show you how that's working and it's a wonderful uh, principle for our application all right now secondly if prayer is always the focus, then losing heart is never the result. If prayer is always the focus, losing heart is never the result. 
Never. Never. That's the point of this parable. At all times, ought to pray with the result that we do not lose heart. You know, this to me, you take this verse and you put it right up there with Galatians 5 where you're told if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a guarantee. Now, there's a ton of verses up there, so get them written down. I'll read them off and then we'll, uh, we'll go through them. I may not even advance the slide past this one between now and 11 o'clock. I hope so, but... I mean, we've got C, D, E, and F coming up. But this is really the, the uh, slide that has the most scriptures, the most point uh, being made. If prayer is always the focus, losing heart is never the result. If you stop praying about it, though, then all bets are off. Okay? If you give up in the prayers, then, yeah, you've lost heart. Losing heart is the consequence. Now, as I mentioned already, we've had um, other passages related to prayer as a focus. Uh, In Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. Luke 11, 5 through 8. And this is the episode I was just telling you about a little bit earlier. It's in the, the application here where they said, teach us to pray. And so he said, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. (laughs) Right? And this is amazing. This is sanctified uh, pestering. And God tells us this is the right pattern for how we are to approach God. Because what happens here? This guy has a problem. It's not his neighbor's problem. It's his problem. He has company now from out of town. And he has nothing to feed him. And uh, how is that the neighbor's problem? Okay. You know, if his neighbor was carnally minded, he he might get a little ugly. And say, uh, how is this my problem? Right? You know, uh, tell me how your lack of planning constitutes a crisis for me right and we got expressions like that in our generation too your lack of planning does not constitute my crisis well i I love the way though that this uh, illustration uses a neighbor or a friend you know a neighbor and uh because what are we told to do in terms of loving our neighbor, right? Are we going to get all pharisaical and say, who's my neighbor? Are we going to understand the, the Good Samaritan parable in this context also? And the point being is that he gets up and he gives him what he wants. He gives him as much as he wants. Because of the persistence there in verse 8. And the, the application for us, asking you will receive, knocking, it will be open, seeking you will find, Okay. Um, And so this is teaching, and uh, the Lord's already given it. He's already given it. So why is He giving it again in chapter 18? Didn't He already teach this? Yes, He did. Did did it sink in? Evidently not. Okay. 
And that's why I love the way the Bible supports repetition and review and reinforcement. As I, don't, I don't care how many times you've heard the doctrine. The next time it's taught, you're going to pick up something else. You go, oh, I never knew that. Okay. One more detail, one more little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there. All right. So if prayer is the focus, then losing heart is never the result. But what do we have here in Luke 11, 5 through 8? We have consistency. We have persistency. We have the, uh, the uh, this man's not going away. He's not going to quit knocking. He's still there on the door. What's the guy going to do? He, he figures out, you know, if he doesn't just haul his lazy hindquarters out of bed and get to the door and unlock it and hand the guy what he the guy is not going to get off his porch. And uh, that's, the, uh, that's the principle. It's the principle we have here in Luke 18. This widow is not going away. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back. She's getting more insistent, more insistent. She's going to wear him out or beat him up, depending on how you take that idiom. There. She's going to give him a black eye. And the judge realizes, you know what, for my own safety, I probably ought to just go ahead and give this lady what she wants. I think this lady here is the one that got tased in, in bee caves. Right? That widow that, uh, and that's her kind of persistence. That's her kind of, uh, I mean, this, this widow is something else. And yet this is the pattern we have for prayer. All right, Genesis 32. And actually, I just thought of another passage i want to give you that's not on the screen it's also in genesis but we'll start with genesis 32 verses 24 through 26 what does it mean to have a prayer focus what does it mean to have fervent prayers see there again is is it a matter of quantity is it a matter of quality is it a matter of uh the number of times we pray or how hard we pray um, what is the nature of fervent, effectual prayers that we're commanded to have? All right, Genesis 32. Years ago in our Life of Jacob study, this was a passage we dealt with. And uh, he's lived 20 years uh, out of the will of God, um, beyond the land-grant boundaries, uh, no longer under uh, the house of the uh, son of promise, Isaac. He's been living with Laban instead of Isaac. And he's been uh, undergoing his own divine discipline, deserved suffering, undeserved suffering, for uh, a whole lot of things. Well, now he's back, headed back into the will of God by returning back to the land of promise. And uh, he's got the wife God designed for him, plus the wife he wanted for himself and a couple of other wives that... He didn't exactly ask for, and, and now he's a four-time polygamist because he can't accept the will of God for his life. And uh, in the process of this, uh, the Lord meets him. And uh, Jacob was left alone, and a man, we understand this is the angel of the Lord, and God the Son himself, and a pre-incarnate Christophany, uh, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. So there's a time factor involved. This was all night long. There's also a discomfort factor involved in the injury that he sustains. And you say, well, I, I'm not sure I'm liking where you're going with this message. 
I, I think prayer should always be instantaneous. And I don't think it should hurt. <laughs> and I don't think I should suffer while I'm waiting for an answer to come. You're telling me that I'm going to be disabled from this point moving forward? So he, the Lord, says, let me go. The dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this is actually where Jacob gets renamed Israel. This is the significance for the meaning of Israel. So what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Striven and prevailed. There's a wonderful concept here and uh, as a pattern, as a metaphor. A picture of prayer in this in this verse, and the uh, and, and you'll notice to this day there's uh, this is where Peniel gets his name too by the way I like Camp Peniel, uh, seeing God face to face and uh, but notice the limping in verse 31 and the the consequences to this day that, that linger. It's a striving. It's a striving. Why do we consider the angelic conflict is easy? Why do we consider that the angelic conflict is uh, where we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities and powers? Uh, you want the, the key to, to wrestling with the principalities and powers? It's wrestling with the Lord. It's being fervent in your prayer life. And it's not quitting until it's time to quit, until the answer is given, until the name is achieved. And uh, so much that we can see there. All right. Well, take that as a pattern. But then let's also go back a few chapters. Go back to chapter 18. 18 and 19 here. We've got the, uh, the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. The prayer comes in 18. And here too, I find it as a pattern for prayer. In the conversation that Abraham has with the Lord. If you haven't figured it out yet, prayer is a conversation with the Lord. It is continuous communication with heaven. And who is it that's receiving that communication? Okay, I believe we ought to have both uh, prayer that's focused both to the Father and to the Son, as we have uh, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, First John chapter one. Okay, now I'm not a heretic and I'm not violating. Of course, you say. <gasps> I know, you've grown up all your life saying all prayer is directed to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. I agree. I agree. When you're going to go to the Father for provision, for protection, for leadership, for wisdom, for guidance, everything you ask for comes from the Father. However, we also fellowship with His Son. All right. And so here's Abraham in a conversation with the Lord. And our prayers are no different other than the fact we may not be literally standing side by side on a hilltop overlooking uh, the Dead Sea, we are in conversation with the Lord, are we not, when we go to prayer? Does He speak to us? Oh, you bet He speaks to us. In that still small voice, in the assurance of our soul, in the fellowship, okay? And again, I'm not going heretical or mystical or anything like that. You're, you know, if you're hearing voices, then come talk to me. 
<laughs> but when the conviction takes place and you know, you know what his will is. Do you not have your answer? Of course you do. So in Genesis uh, 18, the um, I like the... In verse 16, the, the men rise up from there and they head off towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? This little rhetorical question that he asks. Okay? He's talking to himself. I do quite a bit of that. You know, it just, shall I do this? What shall I do? Uh, the Lord continues to do this. He said, shall I say, take this cup from me? Uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Understand, the Lord is illustrating here that he does not hide his will from his covenant, uh, from his stewards on the earth. And we are his stewards on this earth in the present church age. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And he is the chosen steward. It will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that will give birth to the nation of Israel and their stewardship. And so verse 22, then the men turn away from there. They're headed down to Sodom. And I find it interesting. He doesn't send a preacher in there to tell them to repent. He just sends two commandos in there to get Lot out. Okay. So Abraham comes near. Abraham came near. Think of this as your prayer mode. Coming near to the Lord. And said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And it's a prayer fellowship that's focused on God's character. Far be it from you. That's the language in verse 25. Far be it from you. God, you can't do this. <laughs> that seems rather indignant. Rather insistent. You can't do this. Moses had a similar prayer. And God said he was going to wipe out Israel. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. You made promises. If you destroy Israel right now, then you're a liar. You've broken your promises. David told God what he could not do. Jesus. I think it's a mature prayer life. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I think the, when you are in tune with God's will and you know his character, you know his plan, you know his word. We see a degree of intimacy here. We also see the continuous action. This is what we're illustrating is pray without ceasing. Okay? You've already spotted it. It's up there, first Thessalonians five seventeen. Okay. The scriptures we're going to look at are Luke eleven, five through eight. That's the neighbor who needs food at midnight. Genesis thirty two, twenty four through twenty six, that's the uh, Jacob not letting go. Isaiah sixty two, verses six and seven. That's the watchman on the wall. Acts 10.2, there's God-fearing Cornelius. Romans 12.12, 12, Ephesians 6.18, Philippians 4.6, Colossians 4.2 and 12, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. You notice the bulk of those are church-age applications. Why? Because we are a priesthood. And prayer is our bread and butter. And then losing heart is never the result. We have our 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 16. Galatians 6, 9, Ephesians 3, 13. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13. So there, if I run out of time, 
uh, before uh, we get to all those. You will have at least heard them. You can write them down in your notes and uh, look at them during the week. But back now to the one that's not on the screen, Genesis 18. Uh, because what I see here is I see again, I see prayer without ceasing. And yet Abraham ceases. He stops and he stops too soon. So he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. So his prayer was answered. His prayer was answered. He was bold. He asked in faith. And he got his answer. But he doesn't stop there. He says, um, and Abraham replied, Now, behold, I venture to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. He says, you know, Lord, I, I, I might have overestimated. I might be just a touch off. I might have to revise my, my figures here. Okay, Government does this all the time. They're constantly revising last month's economic report. Okay. Um, and he said, I will not destroy it if I find a 45 there. So now he's made a second request, and that one gets answered. He's had two answers to prayer. All right. And that's why I, I, this is a wonderful pattern here for persistence. For continuous prayer, okay? Pray without ceasing. And he spoke to him yet again and said, here's prayer number three. He says, suppose 40 are found there. And here comes the answer. I will not do it on account of the 40. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Now keep this in mind, of course, James chapter 1 says he gives to all generously and without reproach. You are not going to anger him when you're standing before the throne of grace. Not going to anger him. Okay? Because he gives without reproach. May the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy on account of the 20. Now what do we have here? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20. That was his fifth prayer. And then 10 is his sixth prayer. And that's where he stops. He stops with six prayers rather than seven. Seven is always better than six. We know that. Why does he stop with his sixth prayer? Why does he not go to a seventh prayer? And why does he not really say what he wants to say? So after his fifth prayer, he feels he's kind of pushing it. Okay? Which, by the way, we're never pushing it when we're praying. And he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Well, now, who cut him off? He did it himself. When he said, Okay, this is my last one, Lord. Why? You prayed five times already. You're about to, to utter prayer number six. Why are you saying now that this is the last one you're going to go for? But he does. I shall speak only this one. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham. Now, why does the Lord walk away right there? Abraham had told him, this is my last prayer. And he just breaks the heart. 
when you stop praying one prayer short, stop praying one prayer short. You've been praying for someone's salvation. You've been praying for 19 years. And then you just lose heart and you quit. What if the man was going to get saved in that 20th year? Okay, You see what I'm saying? Now, that's the sadness of quitting, of losing heart, of stopping. We don't know how long the test is. We don't know if it's a seven-prayer test, if it's a 20-year test. We don't know. That's not our business. Our business is to stay busy at the throne of grace. Because regardless of whatever happens in the answers, we're built up in the process. We're intimate with the Lord in the process. God probably uh, puts more tough things in your life when uh, He wants to improve the intimacy. Say, come talk to me some more. Right? All right. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. See, what if he would have prayed a seventh time? What if he would have said, Lord, if there's one righteous man, how about if he really would have just spilled his guts and said, Lord, I've got a nephew there. His name is Lot. Okay? He's a believer. He's your son. And he's a bit knuckle-headed because he told him years ago he shouldn't move to that place, but he picked it out for himself, and that's where he moved to. He's raised his kids there, and they've, they're nightmares. Um, but Father, I love Lot. Can you rescue Lot? And uh, when you look down here at Lot getting rescued in verse 19, it's, it's interesting because we're told, I'm sorry, chapter 19, that um, God was moved by the uh, prayers of Abraham, and the uh, and we recognize that God. Uh, if you notice, it's you might overlook it, but it's in chapter nineteen, way down, way down in verse twenty-nine. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities which Lot left. Isn't that beautiful? Abraham never got around to saying, Lord, rescue Lot. That's what he wanted to say. That's what was on his heart. That's what he should have said. And thank God that when we don't know what to ask or think, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for understanding. And when we're selfish or stupid or immature or afraid or whatever and we and we're asking for the wrong thing father knows what we need before we even ask it and i just view this as a tremendous uh illustration of grace in action all right so add that to this to the slide as well luke 11 5 through 8 luke 18 uh john i'm sorry genesis Chapter 18, with Abraham's prayer there. Genesis 32, 24 through 26, we've already read. How about Isaiah 62? Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. Now, this has a primary focus for the nation of Israel. We draw secondary application in our role in the church. Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. Now, translate this across. Make a church-age application out of this. Where has God appointed for believers in the church age to be on the alert? (laughs) 
everywhere. Okay, In prayer, do we need to have watchmen on the walls for the local church? Absolutely. It's the shepherding function of a pastor. It's the deaconing function of a deacon. It's the prayer function of our prayer meetings. Being on the alert for one another, for all the saints. How about in your marriages? How about in your families? Who's watching out? Who's on the walls at your house? Say, well, I've got Brinks Home Security. Duh. Wrong answer. We're talking, not talking burglar alarms. We're talking spiritual watchmen on the walls. You praying for your kids? You praying for the attacks they're getting? You praying for the cosmic viewpoint that's hitting them from their schools to their playground buddies to their teachers to their to Barney or whatever they're watching on TV? Okay. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all day and all night. They will never keep silent. <laughs> you know, guard duty doesn't end. You may rotate fresh soldiers in and take shifts on the wall, but you never have a time where you just send all the soldiers home and leave the walls empty. When would you do that? The minute you do, here, come the, here comes the enemy. You just left your walls undefended. All day, all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. You who remind the Lord. I love that. You know, God's omniscient. He's not forgetful. But remember the expression, God remembered Abraham. God remembered his nation Israel when he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Countless times we're told God remembered Don't think that because God remembered that he had forgotten in perfect omniscience, but remembering means that he specifically, forcefully, deliberately, in a particular way, brought his active thinking around to this particular item, this particular object, this particular person. And so we serve as reminders, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul says about the Ephesians, making mention of you in my prayers, reminding the Lord, reminding the Lord. Father, I know you haven't forgotten about this, but I'm reminding you. I'm bringing it to your attention. I'm asking that your active thought right now might be directed towards this item, this prayer item, this burden, this struggle. And so I am, it's a, it's a definition of a watchman. Who's a watchman? Somebody who reminds the Lord. You're not just standing there watching things. You're telling God about what you're watching. You're reminding him about struggles and needs and burdens. And I love this. Take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest. Give Him no rest. So you don't take a rest and you're not giving Him any rest. You see how this lines up with our parable in Luke? The the woman, the widow, wasn't giving that judge any rest. She just kept nagging Him and nagging Him and nagging Him. She was giving Him no rest at all. She was obeying Isaiah 62 taking no rest for herself and giving him no rest until, until. Now, in this context, he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Let's, uh, you know, bring it to our own application. Until God's provision is made clear. Until his will is made known. Once his provision is clear, once his will is known, then... You go from the intercession mode to the thanksgiving mode. And you praise and you worship and you celebrate. And you tell all the ends of the earth the marvelous things the Lord has done. Until He establishes. 
Jacob let go the moment he got his answer, the moment he was renamed, the moment the assignment was complete. Then you let go. Now, the, here's the other snare. Um, you don't like the answer he gives you. Okay? So you go back and try to change his mind. That's the Balaam approach, which is wrong. That's right. That'll get a donkey preaching to you and get you nearly killed. Okay? So don't do the Balaam approach. When he's told you his will, accept his will and praise him for it. Because moving beyond that is, is defiance and uh, asking for the divine discipline. So there's uh, another focus. How about Acts 10.2? I'm glad we had the time to go through these today because some of them may not be as familiar to you and uh, I think they're vivid. I think they're... Um, I also think they're pretty straightforward. I think they're simple. I think that you can show these verses to someone who was just saved at 8 o'clock this morning and uh, show them how the persistence of prayer is what he's designed for us to do. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man. It's a word that's never used of unbelievers. One who feared God. So not only is he a, a, a regenerate Gentile, but he's also God-fearing. He is functioning in the Christian way of life for Gentiles under Israel's stewardship. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. What a tremendous pattern for us. A tremendous pattern for us. Now, I know there are folks that teach that he's not saved yet, that it's not until Peter shows up. And No, no, no. He's a, he's a believer. He's an Old Testament Gentile believer. This is the chapter that brings him into the church. This is the chapter that takes him from an Old Testament Gentile believer, crosses him into the church whereby he can receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized into the body of Christ. And uh, very similar to all the Jews that matriculated across in, uh, in chapter 2. Here's a Gentile family that matriculates across from being an Old Testament believer to a New Testament believer <clears throat> right here. But what do we see here? You know, I would love it if every man at Austin Bible Church was a Cornelius. Because he's devout. He fears God. He leads his family. You see that with all his household? Is it the head of the house that uh, has the spiritual priorities? Hmm. You know, there's a question that doesn't show up on the 2010 census. <laughs> right? Who's the spiritual leader of this household? And I tell you, I, I, I get, uh, I'm not exaggerating, I don't think, maybe, not much. But my sense is 10 to 1, or 9 out of 10. Phone calls that I get. Asking questions about Austin Bible Church, thinking about visiting, blah, blah, blah. Nine housewives for every husband and father that calls. Most often, the, if there is a man around, he doesn't care. He'll just go wherever she wants to go, make her happy, quit her nagging. Very rarely, maybe one out of ten, will I get a phone call from a man that says, I'm looking for a place where my family can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Boy, those are phone calls. I like to stretch those out. <laughs> yeah, I don't blow off the other one. I, don't, you know, I tell the ladies what they want to know and tell them about Osmo Church, invite them and welcoming and gracious. Don't get me wrong. 
But when it's a husband, a father, a spiritual leader, makes it very clear that, uh, that uh, he wants to know more. Austin Bible Church may not be where he's going to take his family. We may not be what his family needs. All right. Now here's Cornelius and his household. Giving many alms to the Jewish people. He's got a grace perspective. He's a Gentile. Why is he supporting the Jews financially? Because he has a perspective for divine viewpoint. He knows that the Jews are the stewards of God's word. The Jews have the scriptures. The Jews have the temple. You say, well, that's kind of backwards, isn't it? Didn't the Romans conquer the Jews? Doesn't Rome take tribute from the Jewish people? Not in Cornelius' mentality. Cornelius knows he's a Gentile dog and he wants to bless the Jewish people. And he prays to God continually. And so what's going to happen here? And Peter's going to be brought to him. And, and the neat thing is, is Peter needed to uh, minister to Cornelius, but also Cornelius needed to minister to Peter. Peter's got to let go of some of his uh, Judaism hang-ups about who he eats with and what he eats and different things there. Peter's going to minister, and he's going to learn an awful lot through the ministry. Okay? Well, we try to stress in our training ministry. Think how much you grow when you get busy in ministry. You know, you want to you have uh, 20 more classes on evangelism or do you want to participate in the child evangelism fellowship ministry? Okay? Because you're going to grow by leaps and bounds. Absolutely going to grow by leaps and bounds. I'm looking forward to getting our Sunday night rotation back in, on track over in the new building. Giving La Rosa a uh, bunch of teaching opportunities over there. Given Radley teaching opportunities. Given B3 teaching opportunities. Get them in a pulpit. Get them studying. Get them teaching. And watch how they grow. All right. So there's Cornelius. Uh, Romans 12.12. I know what you're saying. You're saying, Pastor, you're not going to finish this slide by 11 o'clock. You're probably right. Oh, ye of little faith. Romans 12.12. Here's the outline for the Christian way of life in the corporate assembly. With unhypocritical love, starting back in verse 9. But see what it says in um, not lagging behind in diligence, in verse 11, fervent spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation. Uh, You know, ho-hum, take it or leave it. In terms of prayer. Is that what it says? Does it say whole hum, take it or leave it in terms of prayer? It says devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. We need to start grabbing on to what devotions are all about. Devotion means you're dedicated. Devotion means you sacrifice other things for it. When push comes to shove, this isn't what gets pushed or shoved. This is what you cling to. Other things get pushed and shoved. If you're devoted to it, what you're devoted to means you sacrifice other things in this pursuit. Are you devoted to your wife? Are you devoted to your family? Then you sacrifice other things for the sake of your family because you're devoted to them. Or, you know, if you're devoted to your career, then maybe your family gets sacrificed. That happens far too many times. You always know what gets what your devotion is based on what gets sacrificed. Are you devoted to Bible class? Well, you know, it depends on depends on what ball games on TV. Okay, 
It's a, kind of a stupid game this week, so yeah, I'll, I'll do church. Oh, but man, this is a high critical game. This is playoff implications. This is a, oh man, and what gets pushed? What gets shoved? Where's the devotion? Devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6.18. Philippians 4.6. And you see, I love the way the Old Testament lays the foundation and the parables tell the story, but it's these verses in the epistles now that bring it into a church focus for you and, and me, and we are just without excuse. Ephesians 6. Are you armored up? Are you involved in the angelic conflict? You got a whole suit of armor, a helmet, a shield, a breastplate, all of this. And notice what it says with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on the alert. I mean, this is so parallel with that watchman on the wall passage out of Isaiah, isn't it? Got your armor on? Are you on the wall? Are you in the alert? On the alert? with perseverance and petition for all the saints. We better be praying for one another. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. Pray for the spiritual leaders. Pray for the teachers. Pray for the ministry. Maybe you're not involved in child evangelism, but pray for the ones who are. Philippians 4, 6. How many prayer words are in this verse? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know how many prayer words are in that verse? In everything. So here's the other thing. Prayer is supposed to be universal. It is a prayer focus. Jesus was showing them that at all times they ought to pray. All times. For everything. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Rejoice always. Universal. Don't think that, oh, well, I'll pray for the big things and the little stuff, I won't, I won't sweat. I won't worry about those. Pray for everything. Why are you thinking that, oh, well, these are big and these are little? Okay? To God, they're all little. <laughs> okay? It's only pride that says, well, i got a handle on this one. No, you don't. Okay? You don't have a handle on anything. You know, it's the Father who's at work in you to will and to do. And it's the Father's will that you get busy praying about this stuff. So if you're not praying, then you're not letting the Father work. And if you think you got to handle a lot of things, I believe I just illustrated, you don't. All right, it is 11 o'clock. So very quickly then, Colossians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. I've already quoted 1 Thessalonians 5, but... Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. There's that devotion again. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And pray at the same time for us as well. So devotion to prayer. Keeping on the alert. Keeping on the alert. You know, when we were drafting the Constitution for Live Oak Bible Church, one of the conversations we had, I'm sorry, Lost Pines Bible Church. Yeah, not Live Oak. Live Oak does their own thing. Uh, Pastor Cliff and I were drafting the Constitution for Lost Pines Bible Church. And one of the things we discussed was the importance of prayer. 
and how it is the praying believers who are on the alert. And it is the non-praying believers who are caught off guard. The non-praying believers who are not on the alert. So when you open a matter up for a church vote, do you want the non-praying, non-on-the-alert, clueless as to what's going on, oblivious to the will of God, you want those folks testifying to what they think we ought to be doing? You know? And ultimately, we didn't include language like that, but we discussed it, we prayed about it, we looked at it, we thought about it. Ideally, (laughs) the ones that that are going to be in tune to the will of God are going to be the ones that are actively functioning within the prayer ministries, within within the mode. You know, if you think about it, I say the same thing too with earthly politics. And there's a ton of people that vote that scares me to death because they're clueless. You ask them questions about who's this and who's that and whatever, and, and they have no clue. They can't tell you who George Washington was. They don't know what the First Amendment is. They don't, I mean, they're just, the, the, the Jay Leno jaywalking comedy routine is is sad because it's so funny and people are so ridiculous. And some of the most blithering idiots have the same vote you have. You ever think about that? In any event, again, devote yourself to prayer, keeping on the alert. And by the way, that we lost pines, nor us. No one excludes from voting. All members have a vote. But it's a thought that uh, prayer is where we're on the alert. Um, and then, of course, First Thessalonians 5.17. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything. Give thanks. And I'm out of time. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Teach us as you, teach, as you taught your disciples. Show us as you showed them in this parable that at all times we ought to pray so that at no time will we ever lose heart. Father, teach us the impact of this parable, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.